0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist bonus podcast. We have a legend in apologetics with us today, the great Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons.org, Reasons to Believe. He's got a brand new book called Designed to the Core. We'll talk a little bit about that. And about some other issues as well. In fact, uh, one of the main books that uh, helped Dr. Geistro and I write, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, was Creator in the Cosmos. I think it came out in 93, you. Is that
1: right? 93 was the first edition.
0: Yeah, and it's been, you've been updating it since then, haven't Fourth you? Fourth edition now. Fourth edition right now. <laughs> well, I mean,
1: every few years, you've got a stronger case, <laughs> That's right?
0: That's right. That's right. Now, Designed to the Core actually goes much further, I think, than The Creator in the Cosmos. Tell us why it's called Design to the Core.
1: Well, The Creator in the Cosmos kind of looked at the broad scientific Mm -hmm. arguments for the existence of God. Design to the Core focuses on the fine-tuning. And it's my fifth book on fine-tuning. But what's unique about this book is I address the atheistic uh, objections to fine-tuning up front. Mm -hmm. and they're predominantly based on the multiverse and hey we've only got one universe how can you make a statistical argument based on one universe Mm. so what i do in the book is i first you know show why the multiverse is not a valid response Mm. matter of fact i cite a famous atheist uh, physicist who said we atheists have got to stop using the multiverse it's a bad argument Mm -hmm. he didn't really explain why i do that in the book uh, Design to the core and then i also say well I've got 50 books on the anthropic principle, how the universe is designed to make possible the existence of life and humans in particular, but it's all on the time, on the size scale of the universe, which allows the person who's uh, not a Christian to keep God at an arm's length. Mm. It's the universe. So what I do in design to the core is say, well, let's look at the argument for fine tuning at all cosmic size scales. The universe, Mm -hmm. the cosmic web, the super galaxy cluster in which we live, our galaxy cluster, our local grouping of galaxies, our galaxy, our local arm, the local bubble on that local arm, the local fluff inside that local bubble, then zoom in to our solar system and look at the features of each of the planets in our solar system, the five asteroid and comet belts, the Earth and the Moon, and the interior layers of the Earth and Moon and the planets and say... Whatever cosmic size scale we look at, we get an overwhelming case that the universe and all of its subcomponents have been designed to make our existence possible. Uh, But then I bring up the biblical principle. The Bible declares that before God created anything, he began his works of redemption. There's about seven texts in the Bible. Probably the most famous one is, The grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time. Mm. And so I draw the conclusion that if that's the case, then everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. So I go over all this fine-tuning and say, do we get an exponentially stronger fine-tuning argument in the context of what the universe must look like, all of its subcomponents and everything that happens in the history of those subcomponents— to make possible the redemption of billions of humans in a short period of time? And the answer, in my opinion, is a resounding yes. Hmm. Now, when we say that the universe is fine-tuned
0: for human life, certainly here on Earth, uh, and you go through all those levels of fine-tuning from as far out as you can go, right to the core of the Earth, there will be naysayers like, um, oh, gee, why is his name escaping me all of a sudden? Tyson uh, Neil deGrasse Neil Tyson? deGrasse Tyson, sorry, yes, who will say, well, sure, Doctor Ross, but ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the universe is not habitable for human life. So, what would you say to that? Well, I actually quote him
1: in the book. You right? do okay, right. okay. He's saying the universe is <laughs> out to kill us, right? Yeah, and <laughs> I'm actually making that point. Once we get beyond our Earth, mm-hmm. yes, we see conditions that are highly hostile for mm-hmm. existence. But I craft it a different way. There's tens of thousands of super galaxy clusters. Mm-hmm. We live in the only one that's fit for life. Mm-hmm. All the others are radically different, not just a little bit different, but radically different. Mm-hmm. Ours is unique in that the clusters of galaxies and the groupings of galaxies are struggling along these long filaments and subfilaments. Whereas in other super galaxy clusters, the galaxy clusters are all jammed tightly together in like a basketball or a football and there you got galaxies way too close together for light to be possible. But I make that point at every cosmic size level. We live in the only super galaxy cluster that's fit for existence, the only uh, galaxy cluster that's fit, the only grouping of galaxies that's fit, the only galaxy that is fit. I don't know whether you're a Star Wars fan, Mm. but I got a problem with those movies. They all say a galaxy far, far away. Right. We've looked at galaxies far, far away. None of them are candidates. (laughs) They need to rewrite the scripts. It's Uh our galaxy. And then you look at our Milky Way galaxy, and of all the different spiral arms, we're living on the one spiral arm where existence is possible. Mm -hmm. So you see this uniqueness. Probably the most dramatic example of that is our star. My peers have been spending 70 years searching for another star sufficiently like ours that it could be a candidate, have a planet orbiting it, and which advanced life is possible. They found many stars that are twins of one another, but they yet to find a twin of the sun. Mm. And likewise, when they started looking for planets outside of our solar system, the first ones were discovered in 1995 uh, orbiting stars like our sun. And the prediction was we're going to find hundreds of planets just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here we are in 2022, and we get to find a single exoplanet that's like any of the planets in our solar system. It led to an amazing discovery. Every one of the eight planets in our solar system must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make advanced life possible here on planet Earth. So when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, we give thanks for Mars, for (laughs) Venus, for Mercury. Mm Jupiter, (laughs) yeah. Well, we also give thanks for the five asteroid and comet belts. Mm -hmm. That's another example. We're now able to see asteroid and comet belts around other stars. Eighty percent of the stars don't have any comet or asteroid belts at all. The other 20 percent have asteroid and comet belts a thousand times bigger than ours. Only our sun has the five asteroid and comet belts that permit our existence. We need a few, but we don't need a whole bunch. I think I remember you saying
0: uh, that the Goldilocks zone that we're in, the just right, you know, we're just far enough from the sun, but not too far, not too close. I think you at one point said, and I'm just doing this from memory, we spoke about this many years ago. You said there's not just one Goldilocks zone, there's about nine of them that crisscross right where our planet is. In other words. Well, the list is now 14. It's 14. Okay. What what would be (laughs) some of those? Every year we're discovering a new one. (laughs) Okay. So it's not just the distance from the sun that's important. What else? What are some of these other zones? Well, we call them
1: habitable zones. Right. And when NASA says there's 40 billion habitable zones in our Milky Way galaxy, Uh All they're looking at is a zone where liquid water is possible. Okay. That's the most generous of the 14 known zones. All right. For a planet to be truly habitable, it must simultaneously reside in all 14. So one example would be the ultraviolet habitable zone. Uh, You need a certain amount of ultraviolet radiation at certain wavelengths for life vital proteins to be possible. But if you've got too much ultraviolet radiation, it kills all life. Right. And so you have to have the just right star and be the just right distance from that star. Well, for a star to be habitable, it must simultaneously reside in the liquid water habitable zone and the ultraviolet habitable zone. Well, only 3% of all stars is that even a possibility. Okay. And of all the planets we've discovered outside of our solar system, we've yet to find one that resides in three of the 14 known habitable zones. So mm. we, can't, we found some that reside in two, mm-hmm. but not three. Mm. But to be truly habitable, they have to reside in all 14. And in Design to the Core, I write about the latest one that's been discovered, and it's the most confining of all the 14. Which one's that? That's the one that you have to be on a planet that has a moon that's nearby, a big moon, That formed as a result of two rocky planets colliding with one another. So both started off with a hot iron liquid core close enough together that their mutual tidal friction circulated that liquid iron so that you get a magnetosphere around the moon and magnetosphere around the earth. They're close enough together that they couple and only with a coupled magnetosphere can that planet be protected from the particle radiation of its young star. And our star the sun has the least problematic particle radiation. But if it wasn't for the coupled magnetosphere, our planet would have lost all of its water and all of its atmosphere. No life would have been possible. The scientists who published this a year ago said this is a habitability requirement. They were very modest. Mm. I mean, unless you've got two rocky planets at just the right distance from the host star, and again the just right star colliding like that so that you get a moon and a planet with that kind of history no life is possible and you can calculate the probability of that happening without supernatural intervention yeah what did you
0: what did you say at menosphere i, I didn't catch that word.
1: magnetosphere
0: magnetosphere There's a
1: magnetic bubble around the earth today okay we don't need the moon to have a magnetosphere today uh-huh because the sun's particle radiation has subsided by about 100,000 times. All right. So we're okay today, but where we need protection is when the earth is really young. And that's when the sun is pouring out all this flare radiation, x-ray radiation, particle radiation. That first half billion years, you've got to protect the planet from losing all of its water and atmosphere, and nothing less than that coupled powerful magnetosphere prevents that from happening. So you've just mentioned three, of these... Fourteen. Fourteen. And the rest are in the They're book. They're in the book, Designed yeah. to the core. Okay. Yeah, and you can find a few of them at reasons.org. The nine uh, that you're referring uh-huh. to, that's in an article I wrote okay. on our website. <laughs> but, you yeah, know, I've updated it in the book.
0: <laughs> so, there's so there's so much evidence that this couldn't have happened in a willy-nilly way without intelligence, that we would be on this planet in this position with these attributes there has to be some sort of mind behind it at least that's where the evidence points and this is why you in fact who was i speaking to here uh, recently about this Uh, they were saying that well it was actually bill craig bill craig was saying yes this fine-tuning argument is even now being admitted by atheists to be the best argument for at
1: least deism, if not theism. Have you found that to be true as well? Well, I've been debating atheist scientists for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And yes, every one of them says the best scientific argument for Christianity is Mm -hmm. the fine-tuning argument. And we've had debates over how strong that argument is. Mm -hmm. But they do admit that that's it. And you see that in church history. The fine-tuning argument was argued by Augustine, by Aquinas. Mm -hmm. So the Christian community has recognized that as the most significant argument and why I like it is that, uh, it becomes more potent with every day that goes by. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow I can make a stronger argument based on fine tuning mm. for the Christian faith. And I can today because of how rapidly the book of nature is revealing things. And yeah, you know, I just completed a draft of a book called dual revelation, the book of nature mm-hmm. and the book of scripture mm-hmm. as God's two revelations. Hmm. The book of nature and fine, t- I mean, fine tuning is where you really see the book of nature piling on the scientific evidence. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know whether you agree with this, but I think 21st century is where we got the greatest human hubris and pride that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think God is helping us break through that pride. With these overwhelming scientific evidences, mm. yeah, certainly the fine
0: tuning, and to to show you the desperation of dealing with that argument, they punt to a multiverse, which there's no empirical evidence for because you can't, by definition, witness these other universes. In the book, what are some of the arguments you bring against that? Here?
1: well, I remember I've been speaking on fine tuning uh-huh. since the 1970s. Right. I already am that old, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> And I remember telling audiences in the 1980s, uh, the evidence based on fine-tuning for the God of the Bible become so pervasive and so overwhelming that atheists will have nowhere else to go but to hypothesize there's an infinite number of universes, or they're all different from one another, and hence we live in the right universe by pure chance. Mm -hmm. Well, it took until uh, uh, the turn of the 20th century into the 21st century before atheists went there. That's exactly what happened. Mm. They began to hypothesize well, there's no God behind this. We live in an infinite Mm -hmm. number of universes Mm -hmm. where they're all different from one another. Uh, But what I said back in the 1980s whenever you have to appeal to infinity, you've got nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because infinity plus infinity is still infinity. Mm -hmm. Infinity times infinity is infinity. Mm -hmm. Infinity to the infinity power is infinity. So if you've got an infinite number of universes, You'll have an infinite number of planets just like planet Earth, and an infinite number of planet Earths. You'll have an infinite number of birch tree species. Birch trees have the property that they peel thin white pieces of bark. But if you get an infinite variety of birch tree species, one of them will peel perfectly rectangular thin white pieces of bark that measure eight and a half by eleven inches. <laughs> and these pieces of bark will fall on soils with random chemicals in them. That'll make markings on those pieces of paper that will duplicate all the photographs, uh, diagrams, tables, equations, and paragraphs in every scientific paper that's ever been published. So those millions of scientific papers out there did not come from the minds of scientists. The mm-hmm. multiverse did it. You've proven too much. Right. So yeah. And I want to give credit to Leonard Susskind because uh-huh. he was a, a theoretical physicist. Who describes himself at times as an atheist other times as an agnostic but he says we have to stop using the multiverse Mm. argument against god it explains everything an argument that explains everything explains nothing what i did is come up with an analogy to make his point Mm. yeah
0: agnostic uh, astronomer paul davies says the multiverse is a dodge they're just trying to avoid the obvious implications of design and th- there is design. The
1: question is who designed it. Right. And uh, Well, evidently, somebody more intelligent than those millions of scientists have been writing all these papers, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: That's right. So um, in the, the book, "Design to the Core, you're actually going into the Earth, I understand, to yes. talk about some of the... Uh, attributes of our, our planet itself. What are a couple of those that show that design is the best
1: explanation? Well, we were talking about the magnetosphere. The fact mm-hmm. that we still have a magnetosphere today is, mm-hmm. is an utter miracle. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the design of the interior layers of uh, Earth. Okay. I and mean, we got the crust, we got the asthenosphere, you got the upper man, uh, mantle, lower mantle, then mm-hmm. you got the uh, inner core and the outer core. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moon no longer is close enough to us to do much circulation of that liquid iron. Uh, but what is happening is that we used to have a hot liquid iron core, but because the Earth has been cooling uh, from its uh, formation, we now have a solid core. It's cool enough that the very interior, you've got a solid core surrounded by a liquid core. And that, that solid core is predominantly nickel, cobalt, and iron. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of sulfur, oxygen, and hydrogen, and and, uh, this stuff is diffusing out of the inner core to the outer core, and it's enough to circulate the liquid iron core and maintain our magnetic field so that we are protected uh, from the deadly radiation that's out there. Mm. Because the solar radiation will kill us, the cosmic radiation will kill us. Thanks to the magnetosphere, we're protected, which is one reason why it's a lot easier to go to the moon than to go to Mars. If you go to the moon, you're protected by Earth's magnetosphere halfway to the moon. Mm. Uh, Whereas you go to Mars, you're only protected for the first Uh 0.01%. And then you're in danger.
0: So So Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. If he wants to go, he can go, but we're not
1: going. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you either put a gigantic magnetosphere around your spaceship, Uh and you're gonna need gravity to stabilize that magnetosphere, so you're going to need a spaceship about roughly the mass of the moon, or another alternative is you put say a thick putness, thickness of lead mm-hmm. all around the habitat mm-hmm. uh, inside the spaceship, and uh, that will protect you from the radiation, but the problem with that is are you going to get it out of the atmosphere <laughs> Well, lead has got a lot of uranium and thorium oh. in it, so that's not pleasant mm-hmm. and lead is heavy
2: yeah that's so what now I mean. we're talking
1: about a really expensive spaceship uh-huh so and then you got to have artificial gravity uh i wouldn't sign up for a trip to mars no uh, in fact uh, the list of people want to they basically tell them it's going to be a one-way trip oh yeah you're not coming home you're not coming yeah. home yeah what it would take about eight months wouldn't it to get there you can get there as, as fast as six months right. if you've got a slingshot effect from the other planets Right. all right but without a slingshot effect it's three and a half years so but six months if you time it right if you time it right. Well, the problem is once you get to Mars, uh, you only got forty percent of the gravity of the Earth, and so you're going to lose bone mass. Oh. And it's because of that loss of bone mass you can't go back to Earth, because uh, once you're exposed to his gravity, your body basically collapses.
0: And you and we got that to look forward to,
1: ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and you're not going to be Mars. able to walk on Mars like uh, Matt Damon did in the movie The Martian. Oh no. With forty percent gravity, it's very difficult to walk. So, And forget about growing potatoes on Mars. Uh, Mars is 60% more sulfur in its soil than Earth does. So you're not going to grow anything on Mars. Now, you, you have said as well that the, one of the
0: attributes about our solar system, or I should say our galaxy, is that the average distance between these stars is 30 trillion miles, and all that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Otherwise, there would, I guess, be orbital problems. We couldn't stay in orbit. Yeah, you
1: don't want the stars close to one another. You don't want the galaxies Mm -hmm. close to one another Mm -hmm. either. Because you will get gravitational disturbances. And uh, there are radiation sites. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I write about in Design to the Core is that we live in a big spiral galaxy with a really tiny, supermassive black hole. It's literally 40 times less massive than we see in other spiral galaxies of the same size. And moreover, for the last 2 million years, our supermassive black hole has been pulling in bodies no bigger than small asteroids and comets. Mm-hmm. So we do see these tiny flares coming out of the, uh, our supermassive black hole, but nothing deadly. Mm. Now, if you go back 2 million years ago, uh, we can see a huge X-ray bubble that's associated with that black hole, which means 2 million years ago it ate something pretty big, Mm, mm. big enough that if we were around at that time, uh, we'd be in deep trouble. Mm, mm. So uh, we're living in this special window where a supermassive black hole is exceptionally quiet and we're in a galaxy with a very tiny supermassive black hole for the simple reason, our galaxy has not eaten a big dwarf galaxy in the last 11 billion years. Uh, Whereas if you look at the Andromeda galaxy, uh, it has been feasting on big dwarf galaxies but the andromeda galaxy even though it's two and a half million light years away that's close enough that if its black hole was typically radiating out the radiation we'd expect we'd be in trouble astronomers have discovered not only is our supermassive black hole in an exceptionally quiet phase so is the one in the andromeda galaxy
0: so you're saying the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years away, that's traveling at 186,000 miles per second for two and a half million years. It would take us to get there. Yeah, if you go at the velocity of light. Right, right. So that's a long trip. Yeah, that is, a, and, that, and that's a close galaxy. Yeah. That's the closest galaxy. Well, one of the issues or points, I think, about this 30 trillion miles between stars in our galaxy, this average distance, you say, that is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. I just want to give our listeners, our viewers, an idea of the vastness of our galaxy and and the universe. I've heard this, Hugh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to take our solar system to be the size of a quarter with the sun in the middle of the quarter and Pluto, say, at the outer rim, the next
1: nearest star would be two football fields away. Well, let me give you, that's a little off, so let okay. me give you a more accurate right. uh, picture. Our star is about a million miles in diameter. All right. Uh, and there's stars much bigger than our sun. Mm-hmm. If we were to you know, scale down our sun to, say, the size of a grapefruit, mm-hmm. uh, where would you have to go to find the next grapefruit? Mm-hmm. Well, here we are speaking in Denver. Mm-hmm. You'd have to go to London or Paris to find the next grapefruit. Mm-hmm. So that's how far apart the stars are. Okay. But you want them that far apart uh-huh. in order to make sure we're not being blasted by deadly radiation or that the nearby stars would be disturbing the gravitational orbits. But you don't want the stars much farther apart because if you got stars farther apart, we're not going to have sufficient heavy element enrichment of our planet uh, so that advanced civilization be possible. I mean, look at the periodic table. Yeah. Uh, You've got 92 elements mm-hmm. in there, uh, and what you'll see in design to the core, of those 92 elements, 90 are anomalous here on planet Earth. In other words, planet Earth has an abundance level that we see nowhere else in our Milky Way galaxy. Mm. The only ones that are normative would be iron and magnesium. Everything else is anomalous, and anomalous by wide margins. So I mentioned sulfur. we got 60 times less sulfur. What we see on other rocky bodies in our Milky Way galaxy. We have 630 times as much thorium, 340 times as much uranium. Uh, we have 90 times as much aluminum, 60 times as much titanium. As what? As what we would expect in other rocky bodies in our Milky all Way right. galaxy. All right. So, but what's interesting is you look at all of those anomalous abundances, they're all at the optimal level for advanced life. Mm. And 22 of them are what we call vital poisons. Too much on planet Earth, we all die. Too little on planet Earth, we also all die. Mm. They have to be at the just right level. Mm. So, for example, you need to be consuming arsenic in order to be alive. But you only need a really tiny amount. (laughs) <laughs> a little bit more than that, it will kill know you. I arsenic. Yeah, you, do I need arsenic. Why do I need arsenic? What's there <laughs> are proteins in your body that uh-huh. are built on arsenic. Really? And, uh, you know, without arsenic in your diet, you will die. Uh, but I can tell you, you only need a really yeah, tiny, I, tiny I amount of so. arsenic. A little more than that, it will kill you. Uh, but that's true of 22 elements in the periodic table. They have to be at these optimal levels. We don't know of any other planet where they're at those optimal levels that would make our existence possible. Let's talk just a little bit about the creation of the
0: universe. Sure. We just talked about fine-tuning. We kind of did that backwards. Um, What is the number one counter, in your view, to the standard big bang cosmology that the universe came into existence out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago? Is there any counter... uh, claim any counter theory that has any merit to it uh there
1: are and i've written about that mm-hmm. uh, but they're not empirical they're not empirical arguments they're not empirical arguments. so they're models without any referent in reality they have to appeal to something we don't know or can measure okay so for example we have over 30 space-time theorems uh-huh. that prove that the universe has a beginning. Uh-huh. Uh, But there have been physicists like Sean Carroll at Caltech who say, well, uh, we can only measure the properties of the universe uh, back to about 10 to the minus 35 seconds. Right. If we go earlier than 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the cosmic creation event, quantum mechanics may have just a bigger, bigger influence on the dynamics of the universe's gravity. And so he's produced what he calls the quantum eternity theorem. Mm. which gets around the beginning, Mm. but is based on the hypothesis that the quantum space-time fluctuations in the quantum gravity era, uh, where uh, you literally have the volume of the universe uh, smaller, much, much smaller than an electron, Mm -hmm. literally, we're talking 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the cosmic creation event. And so he's developed a theorem that says if we make the quantum space-time fluctuations big enough, we may be able to escape that cosmic beginning and have an eternally existing universe. Now, what I've written in the fourth edition of The Creator in the Cosmos, those quantum space-time fluctuations, they get magnified in the light from a distant quasar. And the magnification is proportional to the distance that the light travels, and it's inversely proportional to the wavelength we observe it at. And so one team of astronomers published a paper where they said, well, we've made observations on a distant blazar, 3 billion light years away at ultraviolet wavelengths. The image is sharp. We see no blurriness. Mm-hmm. If the quantum space-time fluctuations were big, that image would be blurry. We see no blurriness. So what, is that, what does that entail? What does that mean? That means those quantum space-time fluctuations aren't as big. Okay. No. What Sean Carroll has said is, well, I can still maybe make things work if I go back to 10 to the minus 80 seconds after the cosmic creation event. Mm. But what I'm demonstrating is he's forced to retreat. Every time we make an observational breakthrough, he needs to retreat to another region. So the fact that the atheists are being pushed into a smaller and smaller corner. Mm. But as I talk to these atheist scientists, many of them say, I'm not going to believe in your Christian God, until we have absolute proof that that God exists. Mm. I says, well, I can't give you absolute proof I exist. Mm-mm. I don't think you can come up with absolute proof that your wife exists. Mm-mm. There's always gonna be some region of ignorance. Mm-hmm. It could but, be in the matrix, right? Yeah, it yeah. could be. right? <laughs> and you know, I told my wife when I married her 45 years ago, I'm marrying you without absolute proof you exist. <laughs> All I got is practical proof. Uh-huh. But 45 years later, that practical proof as many orders of magnitude greater Mm -hmm. than it was the day that I married her, Mm -hmm. we can make the same argument for the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The practical proof based on empirical evidence Mm -hmm. is growing exponentially, and the atheists who are appealing to the non-empirical arguments Mm -hmm. are being pushed into a smaller and smaller corner. Now, I think we, we as Christians need to be careful not to respond to the trap saying, look, you gotta push me all the way back to zero. Well, that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. That will require us to have total knowledge of everything about the universe. Mm. And uh, since we're constrained to the space time dimensions of the universe, we'll never have total knowledge. I mean, you're a philosopher. It uh, was Kurt Gödel, who came up with the incompleteness theory, mm-hmm. basically saying, uh, you know, under these conditions, you'll never get complete knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so. I had it when I was 17, you. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yeah. When I was
0: 17, I knew everything. You knew everything. I, I seem to have lost it. <laughs> seem to have lost it. <laughs> so that's why when I get a question I can't answer, I say, you should ask me that when I was 17. I knew everything when I was 17. But uh, so they come up, and Hawking came up with the same thing when he, we talked about imaginary time. Uh, he was trying to avoid a beginning, correct? But it doesn't apply to the real world. It doesn't a, apply
1: to the real world, yeah, correct.
0: Uh, which is a a problem. You're, you're, you you can create a model about anything, but
1: if... Well, it, at least it Hawking admitted that. And, you okay. know, he proposed that imaginary uh-huh. time. He says, well, of course, it doesn't apply mm-hmm. to the real world. Mm-hmm. So, so why, why is he so, coming up with it then? What's it? Well... <laughs> You know, if you get to know these mathematical uh, physicists, uh-huh. they like to speculate about things that are mathematically possible right. but physically impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, you've got Hawking's uh, uh, research partner, Roger Penrose. Mm-hmm. And Roger is being quoted by everybody saying, well, uh, you know, you could have a collapsing universe that segues to an expanding universe. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mathematics works, but it was Roger Penrose himself who said in a debate book that he published with us, Stephen Hawking, yes, that's mathematically possible, but it's impossible to join the geometry of a collapsing universe to the geometry of an expanding universe. The same reason that wormholes are mathematically possible, but physically impossible, mm. there are all kinds of these cosmic models that are mathematically possible, but physically impossible. And so, people think Roger Penrose believes this stuff. Mm. He says, no, it's a mathematical construct. Mm. I'm paid to come up with these mathematical constructs. I don't have to believe in them. Mm. What's your view,
0: Hugh, on the argument from math to a mind? That perhaps the mathematical structure of the universe, math itself, you know, Eugene Wigner had that famous paper back in 1961, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. There are some people now saying... Wigner didn't go all the way to
1: God, but he said... He remained an atheist, uh, but he did make the point. Mathematics is extraordinarily elegant and beautiful. Right. And it actually describes reality. Mm -hmm. How? Uh, Why does it describe reality if there's no mind out there? Well, that's the question he posed, but he Uh never drew the appropriate personal conclusion. What's your view on that? Well, I think Wigner got it started. Uh Is that, you know, if, if mathematics... In fact, as I taught to mathematicians, they say... There's nothing more beautiful in all reality than the equations that describe the physics of the universe. In fact, when I took my freshman physics course... Is that why so many of them are not married?
0: (laughs) Honey, honey, this equation is far more beautiful than you are.
1: (laughs) Well, I remember the first lecture I took as an undergraduate Uh physics student. The professor said, I'll give you a tip that'll help you become a successful physicist. Mm -hmm. The correct answer is always the most beautiful and elegant equation. Mm -hmm. And in all my years of studying physics, uh, that is correct. Mm. Uh, The the correct answers are always the equations. And why is that? Unless there's a mind that designed the universe so that mathematics could describe physical reality Mm. in a very beautiful and elegant way. I mean, the God of the Bible is a God that enjoys beauty and elegance and symmetry Mm -hmm. I mean that's something we see in unified field theory is these amazing symmetries Mm. and so again this testifies of the one that created it all Mm.
0: yeah it would seem if there was no God no mind behind the universe there would first of all there wouldn't be anything but if there was there would be no order like there is why would math even be possible right why would
1: math describe reality yeah and why
0: could our three pound brains ascertain truths about what's outside of our skulls and come to valid conclusions about the world, describing the world in the language of math?
1: Well, I did, a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. I did a podcast with a Russian physicist and a Ukrainian physicist. Uh-huh. Did they uh, have a fistfight on, on no, air? No, 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 no. They're, they're friends. Okay, all right. <laughs> in fact, they're translating our resources all into all Russian. Right. Uh, but uh, the Russian physicist... One of them wasn't Alexander Vilenkin, was it? No. Oh, okay, all right, go ahead. They <laughs> uh, yeah, they're both Christians. All right. So uh, but the um, Christian Russian physicist says what's amazing about the laws of physics they're complex enough to permit our existence, but simple enough that we can comprehend and understand them. And he says the dividing point between the uh, you know the simplicity we mm-hmm. need and the complexity we need for existence, there's no gap between them. Mm. They both meet perfectly. And why would they meet? I mean why is the universe, Uh, So complex, complex enough to describe our existence, and that, uh, you know, minimum complexity uh, matches the maximum or minimum simplicity we need to discover and understand the universe. Mm, mm. Somebody wanted us to be able to read the book of the universe. Yes,
0: yes. And Kepler famously said that when we're looking at nature, we're thinking God's thoughts after him, this cause and effect in nature. Let me ask you one other thing. And that is, you just participated in a debate regarding climate change, which obviously is a very controversial topic. Um, What is your view of that whole issue, climate change?
1: Well, let me put it in a biblical perspective. Uh The Bible tells us that we human beings are fundamentally selfish. Mm -hmm. So one of the individuals I was debating there was saying, well, we just need to make the necessary draconian economic sacrifices to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. But what he's overlooking is, you know, we humans are fundamentally selfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had this conversation with my sons. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're facing this climate uh, crisis. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with reducing your standard of living by a factor of three? They mm. said, no, we'd rather have the whole world collapse
2: for that to happen. And
1: yet they were joking. Uh-huh. But the problem is there's a lot of people who would be very reluctant to make those kinds of sacrifices. Well, uh,
0: there is a question as to whether or not human beings are responsible for climate change to the degree that some are saying. And the modeling is Suspect for some. What, what's your view on that?
1: Well, I kind of gave an update in All the right. debate I had today saying we now have temperature proxy records that have been taken 200, 300 miles offshore of uh-huh. the continents where humans live. Uh-huh. That takes out the elevation effect and the effect of the different geology of the rocks. Okay. Because you've got water. Right. Okay. So water is going to be really stable. And you're at sea level. Uh-huh. So, uh, And when you look at those temperature records, it shows, number one, that the climate stability we've had from uh, AD 900 Uh to AD 1950 is 10 times more stable than we thought. Okay. The global mean temperature was stable to within plus or minus 0.06 degrees. Mm -hmm. Textbooks say two degrees. Mm -hmm. It's way more stable. Mm -hmm. So the argument I was making is to explain that degree of stability requires supernatural intervention. Mm. I mean the norm of planet earth is climate instability. Mm. And in the human era, we got this extraordinary period of a climate stability to plus or minus 0.6. For about de- a thousand years you're saying? Well, for 9,500 years, it was stable to plus or minus 0.65 degrees uh-huh. for a thousand years, 0.06. Okay. And it's during those thousand years that we saw an exponential advance in technology mm-hmm. and the population grow to what it is today. Mm-hmm. Since 1950, It's gone up by 1.05 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. And it's just unmistakable. So you really can't deny Mm -hmm. that the warming has happened. Mm -hmm. Moreover, all the natural cycles are cooling the planet. Mm -hmm. So if everything natural is cooling the planet, the -hmm. fact that it's warming must be human activity. Mm -hmm. And what's happened since 1950 is an exponential increase in human wealth, human technology, and human population. Mm -hmm. All three of those factors are bound to give you uh, a warming impact. Okay, say that's the case. Why is
0: warming a problem for humanity long-term?
1: Well, uh, what I've written in my book, Weathering Climate Change, Mm -hmm. if you look at the ice age cycle, global warming has always brought on global cooling. What you see in the ice age cycle is that every time the temperature rises to Mm -hmm. about two degrees centigrade above where we are right now, Mm the planet rapidly drops into an ice age. Mm. And I explain why in the book. Okay. That extra two degrees will melt not just the summer polar ice cap, but a significant part of the winter polar ice Mm -hmm. cap. You know, melting the summer ice cap is not so much of a problem. Um, And the the basis Mm -hmm. is this. Ice reflects sunlight with 60% efficiency. Mm -hmm. Open ocean liquid water, 6% efficiency. Mm -hmm. Which means, if you melt the polar ice cap, uh, the ar- Arctic Ocean absorbs a lot more heat. So you get you get more temperature change. Well, you get more precipitation.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Because
1: all that extra heat goes to make more all right. All right. Uh, you okay. know, rain and snow. Yeah. Summertime it falls as rain. All right. If you melt the winter polar ice cap, it's g- snow will fall in Canada and Siberia. Uh huh. Now, snow falls in Canada today. Yeah but only about 10 inches of precipitation equivalent, Uh which means that 10 inches melts in the summertime. Right. Triple that or double that, you now got the accumulation of ice and snow, and very quickly Canada becomes covered with thousands of feet of ice. So we got Canadians moving to America. We can't have that. That's what you're saying. Well, during the last ice age, a good chunk of the 48 states.
0: (laughs) All right. To give you an
1: idea, Uh, The port of San Diego was clogged with ice six months of the year during the last ice age. When was the last ice age? About 14,000 to 120,000 years ago.
0: Okay, here's my my question then. If, If we had ice ages and warm ages in the past and no human activity, why are we suggesting that human activity can forego these changes in the future or cause them?
1: Well, I'm arguing that the next ice age is inevitable. It will happen. Okay. Uh, but we can delay it. I think we can delay it by as much as 1500 years. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If we don't address the global warming we're causing right now, we could see the next ice age beginning to happen in a hundred years. Okay. So I think it's to our advantage to put it off 1500 years
0: right okay so so,
1: and and i'm arguing and here's the second biblical mm -hmm, principle mm -hmm, to bring in mm -hmm. number one we're fundamentally selfish Mm -hmm. so passing draconian laws probably won't work people will cheat but
0: not only that draconian laws then cause other problems like poverty Uh, unintended
1: consequences right exactly Uh,
0: no energy right you're freezing now because you can't heat your house right right so there's a trade-off here
1: lots of trade-offs yeah uh, and what the Bible also declares in Genesis and Job uh-huh. is that God has put us human beings in charge of planet Earth to manage its resources mm-hmm. for our benefit and the benefit of all of their life. Mm-hmm. That implies that God has designed our planet yeah. and its resources in such a way that we will find solutions that will be beneficial for us and beneficial for the rest of life and planet Which Earth. Which would
0: be what? What's the win-win here?
1: Well, in my book, I give you 40 win-win solutions. That's all you? That's not Just, enough. Yeah, I can give you more. <laughs> okay. But I give you a bunch. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I, I think wise use of the fossil fuels we have is uh-huh. in order. Uh-huh. So, for example, literally overnight, uh, we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% simply by trading coal for natural gas. When you burn coal, you get carbon dioxide, you get black carbon soot. And a lot of sulfur aerosols uh-huh. when you burn natural gas you get carbon dioxide and water water is a greenhouse gas but it's a stable greenhouse gas put more water in the atmosphere a lot more comes down as rain so it's not going to have a long-term warming effect the carbon uh-huh. dioxide will All right. but trading out coal for natural gas gives you immediate reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent nothing else is being proposed Gives you an immediate 50% reduction. And, you know, Canada is warming five times faster than the rest of the world. Carbon dioxide is a factor, but a much bigger factor, black carbon soot uh, coming from the factories and the power plants of India and China. They're burning coal to make electricity. And a lot of that black carbon soot falls on India and China, Mm -hmm. but the majority falls in Canada and Siberia. Really? You drop black carbon soot on snow, what does it do to the snow? Mm -hmm. It melts the snow and that warms up the ground. Mm. And so it explains why Canada is warming as fast as it is. Mm. Eliminate the coal, no more black carbon soot. So you're saying that there have been these drastic
0: changes in climate in the past without human intervention, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we can and do affect temperatures with our emissions of carbon dioxide. Which, of course, plants need, right? Uh, So what's the solution if we think we're going to expedite an ice age coming because we're putting out too much carbon dioxide? Uh, What's the solution if, say, China and India continue to do what they do? I mean, we could, if this is all true, we could could drop our CO2
1: emissions to zero. It's not going to have a big play, not going to have a big effect, will it? No, what I'm arguing is Uh that we can give people an economic incentive. Uh Uh-huh. We don't have to pass draconian laws. Okay. We don't need what? special taxes or penalties.
0: Well, why aren't they burning natural gas right now?
1: Coal's cheaper, right? Uh, no, why? natural gas is cheaper. Well, then why are they burning it? Well, they, they need to realize the benefits. I think India is starting to wake up. All right. Because in India, there's widespread respiratory diseases, mm-hmm. and it's caused by all the uh, black carbon soot and sulfur mm-hmm. aerosols and lots mm-hmm. of other nasty stuff mm-hmm. you get from burning coal. Mm-hmm. So they now have a health incentive mm-hmm. to find a cleaner fuel. Natural gas is that fuel. And uh, you see, but the left doesn't go there. The left wants, wants, they want to eliminate wind all. And, yeah, the, yeah. And it's like, okay, we're not going to be able to get an immediate change to solar uh-huh. and wind. That's going to take time. Right. And so if we ever get there, yeah, if yeah. we ever get there, yeah, right. Moreover, uh, there are ecological consequences to both solar power and wind power. You know, those windmills kill birds. Uh And by the way, they got a significant carbon footprint to maintain those windmills. And then with solar power, you're covering up a lot of land area. It's going to spoil the ecosystems of the creatures uh, that live there. Uh So I'm basically arguing, go with natural gas, and that will buy you time to build up thorium nuclear reactors. Okay. Now, as you're aware, there's an anti-nuclear... Sure, people are saying we have to eliminate all fossil fuels and, all nukes. To, and yeah. all nukes and all nukes Then saying you know you're looking at uranium uh-huh. thorium is a completely different animal than uranium number one you get 200 times as much energy per ton of thorium uh-huh. than you do from uranium there's three times as much of it in the crust of the earth it's impossible to have a meltdown well, why, your, why aren't
0: we using that now
1: we should be Well, we actually had thorium nuclear reactors in the 1960s. Yeah. The reason they were never developed, you can't make nuclear weapons from thorium nuclear reactors. Today, that's an advantage.
0: Yeah, of course. We can
1: give thorium nuclear reactors to North Korea Uh and not worry about them turning that into bombs. Okay. And uh, there won't be any meltdown accidents in North Korea either. It's impossible to happen. And the toxic waste... With uranium, you've got radioactive waste yep. that are deadly and toxic for 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. For thorium, they're deadly and toxic for 50 to 200 years. Mm-hmm. That's manageable. Mm-hmm. You only have to storm. If you do it right, you only have to storm for 50 years. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wear special clothing. And you know the workers in the thorium mm-hmm. nuclear reactors don't have to wear detectors. There's mm-hmm. no danger of them accumulating enough radiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's win-win-win all the way around, but it will take a decade to scale up thorium nuclear reactors mm-hmm. to replace all of our power needs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I actually argue, if it's done right, uh, power from thorium nuclear reactors will be about half the price that it is from hydroelectric, which currently is the cheapest source of energy in the planet. Mm-hmm. So there are win-win solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also arguing we need to shrink our deserts the Sahara Desert today is 10 times bigger than it was in the days of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. We can restore it to what it was 2,000 years ago in one generation, which means that huge Sahara Desert, we could plant it with wheat. That would be producing an income for all the people who live there, and it would soak up huge quantities of greenhouse gases. Mm, mm. And so that's three of forty. Uh, okay. You got you got I, more in that. I got book. more in the book, right? But okay. those are three. Yeah. The
0: thing that still trips me up is the idea that we've had these drastic climate change uh, events over long before human beings ever existed. So, call well, there's me. There's a
1: reason call- why. Yeah. It's because the Earth's rotation axis tilt goes between twenty four and a half degrees uh-huh. and twenty two. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And when it drops down to twenty four. That warms the planet when it goes up to 22. It cools the planet. Right. Likewise, the shape of Earth's orbit goes from nearly circular to slightly eccentric. When it goes to slightly eccentric, it warms the planet, and when it goes to nearly circular, it cools the planet. So, it's just
0: natural variations in our natural axial tilt
1: Well, drive. That's what's driving uh, the ice age cycle. Okay, those natural variations. All right. What's happened in the last 9,500 years? We humans have interrupted that. Uh huh. And we began by interrupting that in a good way, because 9,500 years ago, the planet began to go into a cooling phase. Uh Human activity uh, basically warmed the planet almost to the degree that the natural cycles were cooling it. All right. If you look at the global mean temperature from 8,700 years ago... How do we know that? Is this ice cores, or what is that? How do we know... Ice cores is one proxy. Okay. There's 74 proxies that we use. All right. Uh, So... But ice cores is one. All right. And uh, what it shows us is that from 8,700 years ago until 1950, the global mean temperature very slowly declined by one degree centigrade. Uh What's happened since 1950, it's gone up one degree. So where we were 8,700 years ago, which is not a problem for humanity. Yeah. The problem is if it goes up another degree, that's the problem. Because you're saying eventually that's going to lead to a
0: ice age sooner than the natural, uh, the natural well, we're cycle would do.
1: for an ice age. What okay, ha- and a complicating factor: an asteroid struck in northwest Greenland, uh huh, which cooled the planet sufficiently. Because we we're at a point where it was rising to that two degree yeah. maximum. Yeah, that asteroid collision prevented that from happening. It also briefly stabilized the climate which enabled human civilization to launch, uh, what we call the Neolithic Revolution, Mm -hmm. when agriculture began to get scaled Mm -hmm. up, people began to trade and build villages and towns. That instituted warming, uh, which almost counterbalanced the natural cooling. Mm. So we've had this long period where very, very slowly got cooler and cooler. Mm. Since 1950, because of the advance of human technology, Mm -hmm. it's gone up. Uh, way more than mm-hmm. the net, So we're still in natural cooling uh, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my whole point. It's got to be human activity mm-hmm. because everything natural is cooling the planet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since 1950, the level of technology and wealth has been exploded worldwide. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back 70 years ago, nobody in China India was driving cars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go to India and China today, there's cars everywhere. That's right, yeah. And uh, they're pouring greenhouse gases mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's one thing if 300 million Americans do it. It's quite another matter if 3 billion Asians do it. Right. And
0: they're, it's hard to get them, even if you agree that these reduction in emissions would do anything, they're not reducing emissions. <laughs> so that's well, the problem. Well, I mean,
1: telling the peoples of the world... You've got to stop driving your cars. Nobody's going to well, yeah, drive a car anymore. there's a trade-off here. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't you know, want to live in shut down all poverty. your factories. Yeah, they mean, don't want to live in poverty. Well, nobody does. Yeah, so... That's my whole point. We yeah. have to go with the win-win solutions. Mm-hmm. And there's a biblical principle which mm-hmm. tells us God has designed our planet so we don't have to choose between a rock and a hard place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We can do its best for the environment, the ecosystems, and the wildlife simultaneously what's best for us. We just have to look for those solutions. And that's also a biblical principle, Mm -hmm. is that we're to search out those solutions. We're to be wise. Name the book again on climate change, Hugh. Uh, uh, It's called Weathering Climate Change. Weathering Climate
0: Change. And the brand new one we we spoke about in the first half of this show is called Design to the Core by Dr. Hugh Ross. And the website is reasons.org. Correct. Anything else you want to tell our audience before we go? Well, I think you're a great interviewer. Well, I think you're a great uh, interviewee because everything I ask you, you have an encyclopedia worth of information on you. You're, you're quite impressive on all this stuff. It's just great having you on our team, on the Christian team. And you've been doing it for so many years. In fact, I remember seeing you probably 30 years ago at a maybe University of South Carolina. I can't remember where it was. That's
1: when you were a teenager, friend.
0: Yeah, probably. Now I'm, I'm 61. I'll be 61 on Sunday, so...
1: Wow! Congratulations! Yeah, I
0: know. And and our our illustrious uh, Jorge Gill is going to be forty tomorrow. There he is, right? Forty. There. All right, Gil. So
1: You guys going to have a party?
0: He's officially over the hill. No, he can't stay up that late anymore. Oh, okay. He's so old <laughs> that he just fall asleep. We try to have a party for him. So, all right, folks. Great being with you. And uh, tune in next week for another bonus podcast. And of course. We have two podcasts now. One comes out on Friday and this one comes out on Tuesday. And thank you for the positive reviews you put up there wherever you watch podcasts. And also check out reasons.org. God bless. See you next time.